and reading in particular is introduced gradually so that students are able to build up a wide range of musical experience before they learn to recognize that in notation. Hi, I'm Ben Capolo and welcome to All Keyed Up. Thanks so much for listening. Today I spoke with Catherine Fisher and Julie Nair Haig, the authors of the Piano Safari Method Book series. Catherine Fisher is on the faculty of the Athens Community Music School at Ohio University in Athens, Ohio. Her responsibilities include teaching private piano lessons as well as coordinating the piano safari program for children who are beginners at the instrument. A native of Ohio, Catherine received an MM in piano performance and pedagogy from the University of Oklahoma and a BM in piano performance from the Wheaton College Conservatory of Music. Dr. Julie Nair Haig teaches piano at her home studio in Windsor, Connecticut. She was formerly on the piano faculty at the Hart Community Division in West Hartford, Connecticut. Julie holds a PhD in music education with an emphasis in piano pedagogy from the University of Oklahoma, where her dissertation on elementary level piano technique was nominated for the Best PhD Dissertation Award in 2006. Julie is a frequent educator at festivals and competitions throughout the United States. Catherine Fisher and Julie Nairhaig developed the Piano Safari Method during their time in school together at the University of Oklahoma. While graduate students, they realized they had a mutual dream of writing a piano method that would incorporate the best elements of the various techniques they had been using in their teaching. In this episode, we talked about the pedagogical thinking behind this very popular method book series. One note before we start, in case it helps for purposes of knowing who's speaking at any given time, the first speaker in this episode is Julie Nairhaig. I hope you enjoy. Julie and Catherine, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Thanks for having us. Today we're going to talk about your very popular method book, Piano Safari. So the originality of it is evident just in the very first few pages. I remember when I opened it, just immediately reacting to, whoa, this is so different than other method books that I've seen. Um, But although the book kind of breaks away from tradition in many ways, the research that led up to it was really rigorous. I saw on the Piano Safari website, it posted... Julie Nair's 933-page dissertation on piano pedagogy, which I understand led up to the book, and it surveys kind of the thinking about piano pedagogy in really intense detail. Can you talk about this process of starting out with kind of an encyclopedic knowledge of the traditional method books and pedagogical thinking and, and how you use that as a springboard to create something that in many ways is so different than everything that you studied leading up to it? Sure. Um, Catherine and I had both been teaching for a long time before we met at the University of Oklahoma in grad school, and we had both used most of the methods on the market and taught out of all of them. So we already had a good feel for uh, what we liked and what we felt worked best with children and um, all the standard methods. Mm -hmm. Um, And then when it came to writing my dissertation, I really wanted it to be something practical that teachers could use. Um, which is why it's posted on our website if anyone wants to read the extremely long. I did what I could prior to the interview. I may not have read all 933 pages. But but, so I I was looking at basically how the best teachers in the country, or some of them, teach technique to their beginning students. That was my topic in my dissertation because um, growing up, um, I had some technical difficulties that I had to overcome um, as I went through college and grad school. And I, I wanted to make sure I was starting my own students out with a good technical foundation. So 
Um, as part of the literature review, I looked at many books from the past about teaching technique, and then I interviewed um, four teachers well known for their teaching throughout the country about how they teach technique to beginners and observed a day of their teaching, which changed everything about my teaching, not only in terms of technique, but um, many other areas. So we used a lot of the things we learned um, through that in Piano Safari. Uh, it's the basis for the technique in level one, the seven animal techniques came out of this research. Um, and then also just adding lots of um, uh, props, stuffed animals, um, the way we work with children in a playful manner and try to bring a lot of joy into it, which I saw a lot of that in, in the teachers that I interviewed. Um, and then also teaching by rote, which a lot of the teachers used quite a bit also, which was a surprise for us because both Catherine and I had taught um, a reading-based approach, which is most of the methods on the market. That's what I grew up with. I had never gotten a yeah. rote approach. Right. So when we started Piano Safari, we wanted to combine the rote and the reading, which is the most unique feature of Piano Safari. Mm -hmm. Well, I really respect that idea that you did so much research leading up to it, even if Piano Safari is so different than many other method books that you did so much training. I know you spoke about those teacher interviews. I understand one of the people uh, you interviewed was actually on this podcast, which is Marvin Blick and staff. Um, and I would like to talk about him a little later on. But first, I want to kind of talk through some of the specific pedagogy of Piano Safari and talk about where some of these ideas came from. So whenever I, I interview on this podcast people who write method books, I always like to talk about the sequencing and elements that jumped out to me. So I remember when I first opened up Piano Safari, one thing that really jumped out to me was that you introduce eighth notes and transposition really, really early, like just like from the first few pages, um, like right after you discuss high versus low sound, boom, we get like all of the possible rhythm pictures except uh, dotted half notes. There's eighth notes, quarter notes. We label them with a mix of Kodai and Gordon labels. Um, and then just a few pages later, students are asked to transpose uh, the piece that they just learned into different keys. Um, can you talk about the, your decision to sequence the opening of book one where we start with full rhythm notation or almost full rhythm notation and transposition from the get-go? So um, I'd like to start with answering your question about rhythm first. Mm -hmm. I think it's important to note that the rhythm introduction pages at the beginning of Repertoire 1 are intended to lay out the basic counting approach for the benefit of the teacher as much as for the student. Ah. Students are not expected to read all of the rhythms immediately in a piece since the introductory unit um, has only wrote pieces. Instead, we suggest in our teacher guide, which by the way, is a free download from our website, uh, that students take time to learn the rhythmic values and counting approach by clapping back the rhythm on a drum or on the piano fallboard. Mm -hmm. So then by the time they read the rhythmic values later in the book, they've already experienced them. Mm -hmm. Um, and then in regard specifically to teaching eighth notes early, which is a unique um, element of piano safari, we found that our syllabic counting approach makes it easy for young students. Um, and at this point in their music study also, they don't need to understand the math behind the rhythm, but they just need to learn how to execute it. So that's um, my answer to your question about all of those rhythm values at the beginning of the book. And then kind of the second part of your question about transposition, I think one of the goals of teaching those rote pieces in the early unit that utilize transposition is to familiarize students with the keyboard layout and enable them to move around the piano easily. 
And we found that transposition is actually not a difficult concept when the pattern of the piece is understood. And that's how students also learn a piece by rote, by modeling and understanding the pattern. Um, and something we do just practically to aid students um, in transposing is use small key markers um, and that can guide them. So for example, in Hungry Herbie Hippo, that's one of those first rote pieces that uses transposition um, in the introduction. We um, place key markers on the notes the students skip over, and then there's a little picture where they place their starting um, hand, their, their starting finger position. So um, then all they have to do is uh, transpose the pattern and they're skipping over the keys with markers. Um, it enables them to play that particular piece in five keys. And then they learn about the concept of transposition, which is just that you can play this melody in many different places on the piano. And it keeps them from being glued into one position. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I really like that idea you were talking about, about how when you introduce rhythmic symbols, that some of that is to an extent to foreshadow what's to come later and give them an introduction. Um, I don't know if you know the author, Janine Jacobson. I really like her books on piano pedagogy. And I was reading recently volume one, and she talked about how in every way you should always be thinking about what the next concept is that they're eventually going to learn. And you should always foreshadow basically everything um, so that nothing ever comes as a 100% surprise. And I think that's a little bit what you did by introducing eighth notes and all these other rhythms in the beginning of Piano Safari. Yes, exactly. it's very much um, building off what Francis Clark did and Marvin Blickenstaff um, with the the you hear it and you experience it before you read read the notation. And yes. a lot of these ideas about transposition um, were a result of observing Carolyn Schock in my dissertation research. Mm -hmm. She's such a creative teacher. And um, the Herbie Hippo song is a, a standard folk song found in several methods, including her method. Um, and then she transposes a lot of her of the pieces in her method. So I saw that live when I was observing her teaching these little six year olds just transposing with no problem. Right. So um, that sort of worked into Piano Safari. Yeah. I really appreciate that concept of experience it maybe is more important than labeling it. Because I don't actually think, correctly if I'm wrong, that you use the word transpose in the book when you introduce, you talk about how to do it and you talk about these key markers, but we don't actually give a rigorous like music theory definition of transposition that can come later. The same way that you introduce eighth notes, but you don't say, oh, well, this is a half of a beat or go into the sub We let them experience the concepts and we can clarify the exact definitions later. I think that sequencing works really well. Um, the next element that I want to talk about that I really appreciate about Piano Safari is that musical concepts are always mapped onto real world concepts. And I think that makes it feel less abstract for the students. Um, so for instance, there's fun titles like Zebra on a Pogo Stick, which is a great way to introduce them to the idea of staccato. Um, students are often asked to draw these fun pictures to go along with concepts that the pieces explore. And you've mentioned earlier the animals used to talk about technique. Can you talk about your thinking behind always bringing in extra musical concepts to Piano Safari as opposed to staying more exclusively focused on music? Sure. This is uh, just a standard educational practice when working with young children. It has to be fun and it has to be playful because young children learn through play. I mean, that's how toddlers learn. They don't know that they're sitting down to learn a specific concept. They're just playing and their playtime is how they learn. And the same applies when, the, when they start piano lessons at the age of six or seven or earlier. <laughs> um, uh, and, and they really appreciate having that playful um, approach. 
it just makes piano study more fun, more interesting. And our whole purpose is to have really uh, sound pedagogy and, um, and in, in, in a joyful way um, where they are learning and they just think they're having fun and playing, but they're learning at the same time. Um, so adding all of those analogies and uh, colorful titles and the animal theme just helps bring that out. Yeah, I know that there is a series of mini essays posted on the Piano Safari website, and one of them, I believe, is about that topic of playfulness. And um, it also mentions the lyrics as another example of like encouraging play. Uh, then uh, the next thing I want to talk about, about what I really appreciate about Piano Safari is that it kind of allows students to focus specifically on the skill that we want to focus on and it doesn't kind of always clobber them with everything and make them overwhelmed so we have these you mentioned the rote pieces there's also these improvisation pieces which kind of eliminate the need to worry about note reading and we can focus on things like technique musicality and then there's pre-reading pieces which isolate work on finger numbers um and you don't actually introduce the full staff until later unit three um, so can you talk about your decision to kind of hone in on specific concepts in this way, as opposed to some other books, which kind of jump right into full staff notation on page one and maintain full staff notation reading for every single song? Sure. And I, I think it's helpful to kind of refer to what Julie said earlier about Francis Clark and that the idea um, sound should come before symbol, right? That was something that Francis yeah. promoted. Um, so... Piano Safari is based on this idea and in, in the design of our method. And reading in particular is introduced gradually so that students are able to build up a wide range of musical experience before they learn to recognize that in notation. Also, it's very important that students feel um, successful and comfortable with their first reading experience. We, we don't want them to come in thinking, reading is hard, I hate it. Um, so we don't want to overwhelm them with too much information right at the outset. With pre-staff reading in particular, it enables them to focus on a few important concepts, such as right hand and left hand, which some students that age are still working out, um, tracking on the page, uh, finger numbers, and rhythmic notation, playing it all with correct technique. So even that list um, is quite substantial, right? Even before we add in the staff and all of the other things um, that come with that. So we feel that um, those elements I just mentioned are plenty to think about in the beginning um, months and the beginning stage of piano study. And that's why we don't introduce reading on the staff until about midway through repertoire book one. Yeah, this idea you're talking about, about how not starting immediately with full staff notation allows the students to sound really good early on. I did want to use that as a jumping off point to talk about something that I've experienced using Piano Safari a lot in my studio, which is that the rote pieces sound so good that once they do have to move to the reading pieces, they feel like it's to an extent limited, which of course makes sense because there's only so many intervals you can do. They don't get that experience of jumping to the low part of the piano, high part. It, it, it does feel, again, like to an extent more limited. So do you have any advice on how to use piano safari in a way where the students don't feel like the rote and improvisation pieces are really fun and the reading pieces are a little more bland? Yeah. Um, it's funny because, you know, as trained musicians, it, it is that way to us, but I, I've actually found it totally depends on your student. Okay. I've had these students before who love the reading pieces so much that they want to play them like as their recital repertoire, like even okay. um, as opposed to the rote pieces um, and the duets that we add 
hopefully make the reading pieces more appealing. Yeah. But, but with this said, we do get students who would also rather play everything by rote because maybe mm -hmm. they like the rote piece better or they're just more comfortable learning that way. But I just think as teachers, we need to keep a balance of both types of pieces on their practice assignments. And you can kind of liken this to parents asking their children to eat vegetables along with their dessert, right? So we have to keep a balanced approach. Um, but we do try to think of fun kind of incentives for sight reading. Um, and I th Julie has some really good ideas she's done with her uh, studio before. She She's the game person. She comes up with great <laughs> ideas and then, then I use them. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say any specific games you might want to bring up. Yeah, for the reading pieces, um, we can change them in all sorts of ways. You know, you can play them in a high octave or a low octave to experience the different sounds. You could also play them hands together in parallel motion. So we find different ways to um, keep them repeating their reading pieces in new and exciting ways. But in terms of the sight reading cards, which really are important to, to go along with the uh, repertoire book, because they provide extra reinforcement for the reading. Um, some things that I like to do are um, if they're really young students, I'll take a few sight reading cards at the lesson and hide them around the room and they have to go find a card and then play it and then go oh, that's another. So if you hide anything, they'll love to do it for the entire lesson. <laughs> and then another one of the hit games for kids, even up to age like 11, um, is to put some of the sight reading cards on the floor and then you can get like this sticky hand thing at the dollar store where you like Kind of cast it like a fishing line and the hand sticks to the card and so it's like they're fishing for their sight reading <laughs> cards and then they play the card they catch and they would really do that the entire lesson if i let them they love it so much mm -hmm. and then for older kids we can have uh, more incentives like if you complete 10 sight reading cards you get a chocolate or you know however you want to do it but really consistent sight reading from the beginning is important to build up those skills step by step while they're also learning their rote pieces and improvisations, which deal with more musical and memorization concepts. Mm -hmm. I have tried the hide and seek a lot in my studio. I have not tried the sticky hand. Um, another thing that I sometimes do, I don't know if you support this or not, um, is if it's a reading piece that just, for instance, works on skips and steps, is have them play it the way it's written, but then turn it into an improvisation piece, like say, okay, this piece explored skips and steps. Let's try to improvise a piece like this reading piece we just did using only skips. Okay, now improvise using only steps. So I think sometimes it can be a foray into turning it more like the improvisation pieces that they're excited about. Yeah, that's a good idea. I'd like to turn now to note reading. So in Julie's dissertation, you mentioned earlier these teachers that you interviewed and shadowed their lessons. Um, I think we call them exemplary teachers in the dissertation. And one of them is Marvin Blickenstaff, who, as I mentioned, had already appeared on this podcast. And when he came on this podcast, he talked about landmark and intervallic note reading as opposed to identifying one note at a time. And this is definitely the strategy that Piano Safari uses to encourage note reading. It says like landmark notes in big, bold letters. Um, can you talk about your decision to start out note reading teaching by landmark notes and intervals as opposed to identifying individual note names? Yeah, it did grow out of uh, Francis Clark and Marvin Blickenstaff's work um, because as Catherine and I were teaching all the, all the other methods on the market, we both landed on using um, music tree method as our primary um, method that we taught from because so such a high percentage of all our students in our studio became really um, confident readers 
by using the intervallic approach as opposed to some of the other methods we were using. So we really felt like intervallic set up students the best to be able to read well. Um, and then as we were, so we knew we wanted to use that approach in Piano Safari. Um, and then we added the rote pieces just to provide more motivation and different types of sound to go along with the step-by-step -step intervallic approach. Um, of course, note names are extremely important to learn also, mm -hmm. and we do inter introduce those at the beginning of level two, though you can start doing that in level one as well if, you, if you'd like. Um, both are important. Uh, instantly recognizing and understanding intervals and, and melodic shapes and patterns um, in larger groups rather than just one note at a time. Uh, that's the intervallic approach. And then also identifying all the notes on the staff instantly, which takes a long time for kids to practice and learn. So it's just a matter of which one you start with. It's like the chicken and the egg, which comes right. first, the right. names or the intervals. And we've chosen to put the intervals first and then focus on the note names later. But you could do either way. But um, that's the way we've done it in Piano Safari. Yeah. And then when you do introduce um, note names in the sense of identifying individual notes, the way you did it is interesting. I don't know if you made this up yourself or if you took this from somewhere else, the skips alphabet, just to clarify, was that your invention? Yeah, I think so. I haven't seen it anywhere else. Um, it just suddenly occurred to us one day that if you start at the very bottom of the bass clef staff with all the space notes, it goes F-A-C-E-G-B-D, F-A-C-E-G-B-D, mm -hmm. all the way to the top of the treble clef. Um, so rather than uh, a lot of the mnemonic systems like all cows eat grass will be isolated to like space note, space clef or line notes, treble clef. And as a little kid, that's the way I learned it. But I could never remember whether the all cows eat grass was like in the bass clef or is it in the treble clef spaces or is it in the treble clef lines? I don't know. It was four separate things to memorize. Whereas the skips alphabet relates the bass clef to the treble clef in a way that all you have to remember is F-A-C-E G-B-D or face G-B-D. And then you can identify any note. So um, also, if you haven't heard, I'm sure many of your listeners have heard uh, Samantha Coates, her lectures at MTNA and other places on um, not using mnemonics. And she has a whole way of explaining why that's very enlightening to piano teachers. Um, so if you ever get a chance to listen to her lecture, that sort of really sealed the deal on not using mnemonics for us. Yeah. And I think having one thing that applies to, as you say, both treble and bass clef eliminates so much of the confusion that I know I experienced in my studio when I first started. And I did use some of those mnemonics, but now I've wisened up. Uh, my students like calling it face gabada. <laughs> That's how they remember it. Um, so now I'd like to talk about technique. So I don't think, I was thinking what, before this interview, if I know any other method book that got into technique nearly at the level of detail that Piano Safari does, and I don't think so. I think many books talk about the basics, posture, rounded fingers, but you go very thoroughly into technique and piano safari. And I believe that comes from Julie's dissertation, which has hundreds of pages of literature review of different authors' perspectives on piano technique. And specifically, there's a lot of emphasis on developing firm fingertips that don't collapse. I know in my studio, this is something I'm always working through. Um, and you actually differentiate how you believe you should develop firm fingertips depending on specifically which finger. I mean, again, this is like a level of detail that I don't think I've seen in any other method book. Can you discuss your strategies for how to work with students on developing firm fingertips and how you facilitate that in Piano Safari? Yes. So the first thing I want to say is that development of strong finger joints is a process 
Um, and it, it doesn't happen necessarily, you know, in the first lessons, we don't want students to become completely rigidly locked, um, but it's a goal that we work toward and we like to establish early on. Um, so the first thing that I like to do um, is work on finger circles where the students are putting their finger you know, five and one together and then four and one, three and one, and checking with their other hand to see if they can push on that end joint, which is so pesky and um, often collapses just to um, understand the concept of what a strong finger joint is. So that's one of the first things we do. Um, then we move to the lion paw technique exercise, which is the first one we have in Piano Safari, um, which is a single note drop. Um, and the goal is to have a strong finger joint, but a relaxed arm and wrist so that you're dropping into the note with weight, like a heavy lion paw. Um, so we work toward the goal there of developing a strong joint on finger two. Um, moving on through the book, and finally we come to the Zachariah Zebra exercise. And this is really the technique exercise where we focus on building strong joints on every finger. And we found that it's much easier to focus on keeping a finger joint strong when you play repeated notes rather than changing notes, playing successive notes. Because students can really just think about that individual finger when they're playing Zachariah Zebra rhythm on a single note. Um, and then in terms of the different fingers um, having, we, we talk about them in a different way in terms of uh, strong finger joints, as you mentioned, I think finger five and one, rather than calling it a strong finger joint, often we just say play on the corner tip of the thumb and the corner tip of the five. The five stands more tall and the thumb plays on the corner tip so it's not flat. Um, and then two, three, and four are the fingers where we're really working on um, specifically building that strong joint that does not collapse. And playing non-legato facilitates that too, I believe? Yes, absolutely. Thanks for mentioning that. Um, we actually, between kind of the lion paw exercise and the Zachary zebra, um, there's the call giraffe technique that um, works on fingers two, three, and four using non-legato articulation. And it's much easier to keep that strong joint coming into it, um, playing from the forearm rather than starting on the surface of the key and trying to play legato. Yeah, and I believe that's why many of the first few pieces in Piano Safari are all non-legato, which is kind of counterintuitive because as teachers, we assume that legato is the ultimate goal for most pieces. But if the goal is to develop firm fingertips and playing with the whole arm, it's actually better to start out non-legato. I did not know that until I looked into Piano Safari. I was listening to your interview with uh, Tim Topham, which was several years ago, and he also said like, oh, I didn't know about this non-legato thing until I... Uh, read Piano Safari, and I was like, yeah, I didn't know that either until Piano Safari. That came directly out of my dissertation research. That was one of the research questions I asked all the teachers. Should students start legato or non-legato? And all of them said non-legato, except one. And she said, well, legato, of course, unless the student can't do it, then non-legato is yes. definitely easier. And it's easier to keep the firm fingertip, and it's also easier to form the hand shape and keep a relaxed technique. So the first half of the book of level one, we insist that they play everything non-legato until they form that piano hand and um, their strong fingertips. And then we introduce legato. Yes, I have to admit, when I first opened Piano Safari and learned about that idea, I definitely had a moment where I was like, oops, because <laughs> um, I had been always encouraging legato from the get-go. But once I started using Piano Safari, a lot of the collapsing of finger joints and stuff that I noticed beforehand did get mitigated a bit. Uh, do you have any other advice for teachers who already use Piano Safari in their studios to maximize their use of the method book? Yeah, um, a couple things. One is to use it the way your student needs it. So 
some students will just you know learn a piece the way it is and that's it whereas others need more challenge so you can modify it by um, playing it hands together or playing it faster or slower or working on phrase endings um, all sorts of different ways to make it more interesting and uh, add variety to the repetitions um, and then the other thing is that we want to be sure teachers uh, realize that it's a unit based approach so it's not uh, a method book where you pick up pick it up and you just teach chronologically through each page in order um, it's designed book one's designed in five units so you can assign the pieces in any order within that unit that you want oh based like so there's rope pieces in there there's improvisation there's technique there's reading pieces and then there's all their sight reading cards so a student on their assignment might need another reading piece one week and then a different week they'd need rope piece just to have oh, a balanced assignment so you can work within within the unit in any order you like and then once students complete complete all the pieces and exercises in the unit and all their sight reading cards that go with that unit they graduate to the next student so that gives a lot of flexibility to the teacher to use it in the way the student needs oh i admit i have not thought to do that so what you're, that's a very good suggestion so what you're saying is like let's say i have a student who's pretty good in terms of technique but struggles with note reading and i get to a new unit i might want to jump to the note reading piece first and then come to the technique pieces later if that's what works better for that student yeah whatever works better but we try to have a balanced assignment so their whole right. assignment is not reading um, mm -hmm. but they might have like one rope piece um, a technique exercise and two reading pieces and three sight reading cards they're working on and then right. maybe some review pieces from past units that they still want to keep playing so that they have a lot on their assignment and it's varied that's a very good suggestion okay i'm going to incorporate that starting with my lessons today <laughs> thank you um then finally before we go can you give everyone a sense of what you're up to now and where um everyone can go learn to learn more about piano safari if they don't already use it in their studios and know about it so right now we are quite busy, but we're doing a really exciting project because we're writing um, a book called Piano Safari Friends, and that comes before Repertoire Book One um, for preschool age in particular. So we're kind of aiming it toward four and five-year-old beginners. Mm -hmm. um, so this is not to say you have to start with that book. If you have an uh, you know an average age student who's six or seven, they still can start directly in level one. But for those um, students who need a more gradual introduction to the concepts mm -hmm. in repertoire one, um, Piano Safari Friends will be the book for them. So we've just had a, so much fun. We've been composing lots of new music. Um, and I'm just kind of getting in that mindset of what a preschooler would enjoy. <laughs> so we're going to be releasing that this summer at the National Conference on Keyboard Pedagogy. If I could ask a follow-up question to that, I know I've seen in interviews when you talked about when you released the Piano Safari for older beginners, you said that uh, you felt like philosophically it was the same, but it was designed, like the graphics were edited, and it was, but fundamentally the philosophy was the same. Would you say the same thing about this new book that you're describing? Yes, absolutely. Although, as you might expect, um, for this age range of four and five-year-olds, we're not doing much reading at all. Okay. Um, very rote focused. And then we have a new style of rote piece called Follow the Leader. And so what this is, is um, the teacher is playing like an accompaniment with their left hand and playing um, the student line in their right hand. Then they move their right hand off and the student immediately echoes in the same octave what the teacher just played. So it's kind of a back and forth idea. For the student to really experience playing rhythmically um, and just 
having good attention to watch that pattern and repeat it. So it's even easier than a rote piece in a way because they're not even memorizing the right. patterns. They're just copying it right after the teacher. Um, and then we also have our standard kind of standalone rote piece uh, for the students and um, just tried to incorporate um, some, a lot more clapback um, and kind of movement activities and singing in the book. So. I don't off the top of my head know the title, but I believe there's one piece in Piano Safari book one that is an example of what you're talking about. Follow the leader. Oh, uh, yes. It's giraffe. actually Tall Giraffe. and uh, Yes. Okay. Yeah. It's the Tall Giraffe Improvisation. Mm -hmm. Yes. So this, these are written in that style. Exactly. Okay. Well, anyway, um, I really appreciate both of you coming on the podcast. I think I've made it clear that I use these books all the time in my studio and love doing them. I think they're so original, um, but clearly so grounded in research, very creative. My students are so excited about it. Um, so really appreciate everything you do. And thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. It's, it's been um, a wonderful experience to chat with you today about Piano Safari. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for tuning in to All Keyed Up. I'll see you next time. If you have any feedback about the episode you just heard or suggestions in general for the podcast, please feel free to reach out to me through the contact page at www.bencapolo.com. Thanks again.